1: has a sunroof singing like they're trying to make the sun move and i love it i'm finally done running it took some time but now i know i work in tech for a movie studio in la and so i not right there behind all the cameras as we kind of are here behind the scenes i'm a little bit more far further removed i'm more on the corporate side i work there supporting uh, some of their applications um, and i also do some real estate investing on the side as well i would say i had a typical sda upbringing my parents are a seven-day adventist they grew up here in loma linda my brothers and i are very different we have different personalities. It was very interesting growing up. You're dealing with four boys, a lot of horseplay, or a lot of, um, you know, just being boys, and just a lot of sports growing up. So it's not as crazy when we get together as it used to be back in the day when we were kids. But I uh, wasn't part of the Adventist school system. I actually went to a public school my entire life and enjoyed it. I um, always had SDA friends. So most of my friends growing up were actually from the church. and. Um, so I was always surrounded by the Adventist principles and um, really felt like this was the right religion for me. Yeah, it was an interesting time in my life, that college period, especially as an Adventist. Growing up Adventist, you tend to take things for granted. Church, for me, was uh, something I looked forward to, actually. During the week, it was a time to, to see you know, friends. We started a media department from scratch. And so we had three or four cameras that needed operating. So my brothers and I, along with a lot of our friends, uh, started becoming cameramen and camera women. That was uh, a great way for us to plug in to the church, get involved. And uh, I'm really grateful for those, those opportunities. But at the same time, you kind of want to do something else as well. You're watching movies, uh, you're hearing about it on on the school campus about different things that are going on, different social events that might be happening on the weekends, and I kind of want to participate in some of those events as well. So I finished grad school. I moved out to LA and uh, wanted to be part of a Christian or Adventist community while I was there. And I got on Google Maps and started looking for churches nearby and kept expanding my radius and just couldn't find a church that resonated with me. There were a few churches that did have younger families or even young adults my age, but they just weren't as warm or welcoming. So I would come into the church and uh, usually sit in the back, and obviously the elder or the deacon at the door would, would greet me, uh, but afterwards didn't really feel a connection with anyone else in that church. I didn't have many young people coming up to me and introducing themselves. Going to church just wasn't something that um, that sat with me right. It just. It felt like a waste of time. I would just go there and I just wouldn't connect with the with the sermon or with the, the church body there. And so I decided to just uh, find other venues of, of networking and of making friends. I did see my relationship with, with God as well starting to be impacted by that. Yeah, I, I'd say that as with many things in life, things tend to happen slow. They don't always happen overnight. Um, if you look back on some of the things that you know we've all done, you realize that there was a small decision that you made, and then that led to other similar decisions as well, and you find yourself uh, pretty far away from the direction that you were hoping to go, and that's, that's what happened to me. I'm still on a journey, so I'm by no means perfect uh, today, but I... I've come a long way, I think, and I, I feel like I still have a lot to go, but during that period, I was finally living that life that I'd always wanted to live. Always, I was now able to do those things that I'd seen in movies and music videos, being able to go to house parties, being able to, to drink, being able to, to do all the fun stuff that a lot of the young people my age um, are doing. They were fun momentarily, but uh, afterwards, that fun or that pleasure doesn't last very long. That being said, I did keep the two pretty separate. Um, So I was able to kind of um, enjoy those activities and then uh, still be able to have somewhat of a relationship with God. For me, I'd say the turning point was actually the pandemic. And so after about six months of uh, living in LA, I made the decision to move back here to Loma Linda to be uh, with my parents, and um, well, just to work remote uh, from here in Loma Linda. Uh, Started connecting with some of my old friends from my church uh, that i had grown up in. And that's when I started attending the young adult group here at Lomond University and started making friends here and just seeing how genuine they were in uh, the way they spoke and the way they acted, not just on the Sabbath in, in church, but also on the weekends or in the evenings when we hung out and did other extracurricular activities. That was what showed me that being an Adventist is enjoyable. And coming over here to the Praxis community, I found other young people that were perhaps struggling with the same things that I was. I didn't have to hide those anymore. I was able to be more genuine, more open with them. They're very excited to come to church, and that excitement is contagious. Church has a deeper meaning. It's got faith. It gives life purpose. I could go and be part of a bingo club and that's cool but that's very superficial it doesn't give me much purpose for my life but coming to church every sabbath connecting with fellow believers building each other up not just for this life but for the next one in heaven that is very important you don't find that outside of a church community i'm on a journey And I've gone through a lot in the last year or so. I've gone through a lot in the last decade or so. And those experiences have made me more mature. Uh, They've made me more wise. And I'm more sure of who I am, what I want, and the direction that I'm going in. I just want to be a good person. Uh, to spread love, joy, peace, happiness to those around me because I think as Christians that's what we're called to do is to reflect God to those in, in our community.
0: And so you have another conversation with a friend. You've been going to church and thinking about this question to believe or not to believe that is the question. Your friend is agnostic, leaning toward atheist. Because she's your friend, she's a bit more measured in what she says to you, but you can tell there is some heat behind it. She says, you know why I have no interest in your religion? Because of your church. Organized religion, I don't believe in it. She pauses a moment and then adds to it, In fact, organized religion has done all kinds of horrible things in the world. Another pause. She says, so, you going to convince me? So what do you need to consider? What thoughts go through your mind in terms of how to respond, not just to a question, but to a challenge? Well, maybe one of the first things any of us ought to think about, if that's the case, we ought to think about saying, you're right. It is true. And even though I can't speak for everybody else, and even though I can't speak for the past, I I can say this on behalf of my faith. I'm sorry. I apologize. After all, what your friend says is true. If you doubt that, go home this afternoon and sit down at your computer and type into the Google search bar a few words or a few phrases. Words like the Crusades or the Inquisition or Christian support for slavery or the church in Nazi Germany. Or any of a range of other realities clergy sexual abuse by that point you you may want to stop because it starts to get overwhelming for that reason when your friend asks you you might want to say I'm sorry if you do you will certainly not be the only one in fact Jonathan Hill starts his book, in the first few paragraphs of the book, what has Christianity ever done for us, with these words. Most people would accept that Christianity has, of course, got many things wrong. It was Christians who engaged in the Crusades, for example, the series of wars against the Muslims in the Middle Ages. In 1996, 900 years after the First Crusade was launched, thousands of Protestant Christians took part in the reconciliation walk. Retracing the route of the Crusaders in order to apologize to the Middle Eastern countries they had attacked. Four years later, Pope John Paul II also issued an official apology from the Roman Catholic Church urging, let us confess our responsibilities as Christians for the evils of today. These acts of contrition may have come a little late, but they have been no less sincere for all that. Certainly Christians today are among the first to recognize that the church has done wrong in the past, and they are among the first to condemn not only the Crusades, but the excesses of the Spanish Inquisition, the witch hunts, and so on. As we shall see in this book, there have always been voices within Christianity raised against the church itself when it steps out of line. So maybe that's a place to begin. I'm sorry. It's true. But don't leave it there. In fact, maybe what you may want to say is, listen, could I, would you permit me to show what our marching orders are from our Founder? from the one whom we claim to follow, what his idea, what his dream of this community we call the church would be. May I show that to you? All right. Well, there's no better place than you can, that you can go than to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22 because in this Gospel, Jesus iterates as clearly as he ever does just what his dream, his desire for the church is is for his band of followers it happens at a crucial moment in his life and ministry one commentary says at this point the die has been cast Jesus destiny is certain he is living very much under the shadow of the cross now his opponents are merely trying to organize the final puzzle pieces to bring about his demise In Matthew 22, they ask him three questions. They're trying to lay a trap, trying to get him to step in it, and then they can spring the trap, and they'll have the evidence they need. So three groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, who were not friendly, joined together. It gives you an idea of just how threatening Jesus was to them. It would be like the Republicans, the Democrats, and the Green Party all coming together. We're in this together. Wow. So they approach him with three questions. The third one is our interest today. This one is put forward by the Pharisees. They're sure they have him here. I want to read the words of what happens. Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's the group that came before, now the Pharisees are up, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, teacher, So when they lay the trap for his feet, Jesus quotes to them their scripture. Would have been referred to as the Hebrew scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. He draws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and says, in answer to your question, here's what I'll say. Here's my dream for my community. Here are their marching orders. Here, if they will follow my footprints, is where they should put their footsteps. Two things, love God, love others. He uses the verb form of that well-known Greek word, agape, the most self-sacrificing, other-centered love. Love God, love others. He says that's it. Everything else hangs on these two commandments. All religious life and experience grows out of them, is nurtured by them, and hangs from them. Love God. Love others. That's magnetic as a vision statement. And so you share that with your friend. This is what our founder dreamed. And your friend says, Really? Then how did you get from that to this? Honestly, you're standing there wondering the same thing. How did we get from love God, love others, to driving around town and seeing the bumper sticker that says, Jesus, save me from your followers? How did, how, how did that happen? How did it happen that a community that is supposed to be known for its love to God and love to others has become too often in history a community that is known for keeping people from loving God and loving others? How is that possible? What happened along the way? In fact, my colleague Adriana Pereira sent me a statement. It only hurts a little bit from John Allen Turner. Here's what it says. It's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can't see doesn't seem to like them. It's funny how that works. God loves you. We don't like you. Come and join us. <laughs> That's not the best evangelistic strategy. So what happened? How did it change that dream that Jesus had? Where did we experience such dramatic mission drift? Well, we have to admit, as already stated, that a vision statement like that Love God first, love others second, keep your spiritual life healthy by your love to God, your relational life healthy by your love to others. You have to admit that that has a magnetic power. And so, with that as their dictum, as their directive, they went out and began to interact with the world around them, and people responded. fact another interesting thing to do is to sit down with the book of acts and just start thumbing through the book of acts and notice how many times you come across statements like this three thousand were baptized in a day and the lord added to their number those who were being saved and the church continued to grow Over and over and over again, statements like that appear in the book of Acts. In other words, there was a magnetism that drew people in. It grew by leaps and bounds, which very quickly put them right in the heart of a problem. Within just over five chapters, they go from a ragtag band of illiterate fishermen and others to suddenly this robust community of thousands of people and having them saying, we, we, we've got to organize. We've got to organize something. We've got to get some structure. We've got chaos here. People are being left out of the feeding. Widows are being mistreated. What? We've got to organize. And thus begins the process of organizing this thing called the ecclesia, the church. And it continues to grow. As it grows, it organizes. And as it organizes and the years pass, it becomes very structured. And the more structured it becomes as the decades pass, the more hierarchical it becomes. And the more hierarchical it becomes as the centuries pass, the more institutional it becomes. And there's an interesting dynamic about institutions. Institutions are invested in protecting themselves, preserving the institution, being careful only to let the right people in, keep the others out, make sure our PR face is the, if it's true or not, I don't know, but keep a good PR face to the outside world. And when an institution is invested in protecting itself, invariably people get hurt in the process. Now it's almost an unavoidable dynamic because of another reason, two realities that collide. The other reason is that it seems that there is woven into the DNA of human beings this need to be communal. To come together. For all you may say about my spirituality is only me. It's only me and God. The truth is most people start to gravitate to others. We have a desire to be connected. Look at us here today. Coming out of a pandemic, it feels good to be in the presence of others again. And if we're clear on the mission, love God and love others, that's magnetic, coupled with the communal realities of human beings, and we grow, and thus begins the process. In fact, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote a statement that wasn't directly about this, but is close enough to it that it sheds light on this issue. There are challenging words from Wesley. It's often been called Wesley's sorrow or the law of the decay of pure religion. Here's what Wesley wrote. I fear wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. Therefore, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of true religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world. How then is it possible, asked Wesley, that Methodism, that is a religion of the heart, though it flourishes now, should continue in this state? For the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. Consequently, they increase in goods. Hence, they proportionately increase in pride, in anger, and in the desires of the flesh. So although the form of religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. Is there no way to prevent this, this continual decay of pure religion? It's a haunting question. It's a question that can keep preachers staring at the ceiling at midnight. It's a question that can keep believers up at night. Is there no way to prevent this, this continual decay of pure religion? I don't want to be a Christian, says your friend, because I don't believe in organized religion. Look at all the bad it has done. Well, our interest is in honesty. In this series, we've been trying to identify credible reasons to believe in God. So as part of that, we have to be balanced about that reality. Because while what your friend states is true, it is also true that organized religion, that Christianity, has done amazing things for the world. You may also want to sit down at your computer and type some things into the Google bar and see where it leads you. Maybe type into the Google search bar, the treatment of women and children and slaves in early Christianity. Unbelievable the way it changed for the better their lives. You may want to type into your Google search bar, how did the Christians of the first centuries respond to pandemics? And you will find that as everybody else ran that way, they ran in to care for the dying. You may want to type in history of hospitals or who started the hospice movement. You certainly want to type in the name William Wilberforce and the fight to abolish slavery. Maybe you'll want to type in the the mission, the message, and the reach of the Salvation Army. Maybe you'll want to type in what led C.S. Lewis to faith. Or, what was J.R.R. Tolkien's understanding of God? And you'll certainly want to type in why did the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach, on each of his completed works, write those words, Soli Deo Gloria? Christian faith has done great things for the world. So, we have to be balanced in dealing with the issue so we come back to the question a mission statement like that love to God love to others will magnetically draw people because we are drawn to communal realities In fact, Eugene Peterson says there is something we can experience in community that we can never experience in any other way. We cannot, is Peterson's contention, we cannot live faith alone. Listen to his words. Love cannot exist in isolation, away from others. Love bloats into pride. Grace cannot be received privately, cut off from others, it is perverted into greed. Hope cannot develop in solitude, separated from the community, it goes to seed in the form of fantasies. No gift, no virtue can develop and remain healthy apart from the community of faith. Outside the church there is no salvation, is not ecclesiastical arrogance, but spiritual common sense confirmed in everyday experience. So then what do we do? How do we maintain our focus on the mission? There's something, something interesting about those verses in Matthew 22. I don't want to make too much of it, but on the other hand, you see there were groups coming to Jesus, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees' groups. Sure, they would push forward their spokesperson, but it was clear to Jesus they're coming as a group. And yet in response to the question, that third one, the one we looked at today, what's the greatest commandment? I understand he's talking to that individual. I accept that. don't want to make too much of it. But the group is there. And in response to that question, Jesus says, Love God, love, the verb form of agape, and it's in the singular. Love others, same word, it's in the singular. A group has come, and Jesus says, you, singular, love. It's curious. It got me to thinking about my time years ago as a chaplain in the hospital that is not that many steps from our front door. Got me to thinking about what people would say at times to me then. Didn't say it all the time, but they said it with a fair degree of frequency. A patient might say, or a former patient might say, I love Loma Linda Hospital. I would swell up with just a bit of pride, and I'd say, it's good to hear that. Why do you love Loma Linda Hospital? And you might say, well, see, I had a very serious surgery. They're very delicate, very dangerous surgery. I was admitted the afternoon before, and that night I was scared out of my mind. Is this my last night on earth? I thought, there's no way I'm going to sleep tonight. And then my physician my surgeon, came into my room. She pulled up a chair at my bedside, and she talked with me about the surgery. She got out a piece of paper, and she kind of drew a little diagram, explained what they were going to do, what was wrong, how they were going to try to fix it. Said to me, do you have any questions? And we talked. And then before she left the room, She said, may I pray with you? And we prayed. And I slept like a baby. I love that hospital. Very curious. Hospital, Loma Linda Hospital. That's an institution. LLUH, 16, 17, 18,000 employees. Huge structures. I love that hospital. Why? Will you see my doctor? Singular. Or a patient might say, when I was a patient there, Loma Linda University Medical Center, a place that I love. They were giving me some medication that gave me insomnia. I couldn't sleep at night. And and when you can't sleep, it's horrible. But I had a night nurse. He used to come into the room, and he would tell me jokes, and we would laugh. He'd sing. He danced a little bit. We, We had a wonderful time throughout the hours of the night. I made it through. I love that medical center. Institution. Why do you love it? We see my night nurse singular. Do you understand that it also works in the reverse? There were times, many fewer times, but nevertheless, there were times when somebody would say, I hate that hospital. Why? My 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 kid was in an accident, they took them there in the ambulance, I got there, nobody could talk to me about what was going on. No one came. Wait, 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 wait. What did you say? No one. Singular. You mean one person could have talked to you and changed your whole experience? Hate that hospital. Why? No one came. It's curious. Works with hospitals. I wonder if it works in churches. You know, that's a curious... Actually, that's not a curious thought. That's a terrifying thought. A thought that one person... Can form other people's opinions about an entire structure, an entire institution, one person. And Jesus says, You who have come to me, Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, what's my mission statement? You, singular. Love. One person at a time. Wow. So when your friend says, I don't know about organized religion, I don't know about your church, what is wrong with your church? You know what I would need to say? I would need to say, I'm what's wrong. I am because I'm a broken person. I'm a sinner. The only way I got in the door was the grace of Jesus. And if I haven't represented that well to you, then I'm very very sorry. I love the story it comes from a blog Matt Woodley, pastor I think, but a blogger Posted it some years ago, he writes, My friend Emilio owns a tiny pizzeria that makes the best New York pizza on Long Island. Emilio hates organized religion. Above the stove where he sticks the orders, he also collects small newspaper clippings about flawed and fallen ministers. I call it his rack of shame. Every time I come in for pizza, he leans over the counter, slides a few clippings across the counter, and whispers to me Hey, look at this. This Padre walked off with $80,000. This pastor slept with three church members. This guy abused little boys for 20 years. Okay? Do you get it why I hate your church? Then, with a the triumphant flare, he sticks the articles back on his rack of shame. A few months ago, I I got fed up with this clergy bashing. So I blurted out, so what does this prove, Emilio? So priests and pastors do despicable things. What if I started a rack of shame for people in your profession and then declared I'm never eating pizza again? Actually, (laughs) over the next few weeks, I tried rummaging through the newspapers looking for articles about pizza guys doing nasty things. (laughs) you know, spitting in the bread dough or using cheap ragu instead of homemade sauce. (laughs) But apparently pizza guys live pretty clean lives. (laughs) Finally, after a month or two of bickering back and forth, I came to Emilio and said, I need to order two slices of cheese, and I need to ask your forgiveness. He bristled and shot back. Is this a trick or a joke? No, really, Emilio, I'm truly sorry for being a jerk and for arguing with you, and I want the cheese slices too. The truth is that ministers do screw up. We can be pretty decent people, but sometimes we're frauds and hypocrites. Sometimes I'm a sham. Emilio Emilio immediately softened, and we've actually become friends. But I did not say this as an evangelism strategy. I said it because it's true, and it's the gospel. I love the line that summarizes the gospel this way. We are more flawed than we would ever dare admit, but we are more loved than we would ever dare imagine. I'm not sure why it's so hard to get to this simple truth, truth, I qualify for the cosmic rack of shame, but through God's infinite mercy, Jesus took my place on the rack and set me free. Emilio, my outraged, anti-clerical, unchurched, pizza-making friend, helped me see the gospel again. I guess he evangelized me. I guess I have to be more careful. Jesus keeps sneaking up on me. I never know where he'll pop up next. I take great comfort in the fact that even more times than I'd care to admit I'm what's wrong with the church, that I'm not alone. Because from the very day Jesus called his first followers, the church has been made up of flawed and broken people who are saved one person singular at a time and who get to speak for Jesus one person singular at a time. From the very beginning. In fact, someone put it this way when the church was founded, the pastor was being crucified, executed as a criminal. The chairman of the board was cursing and swearing that he didn't have anything to do with it at all. The treasurer was committing suicide. The rest of the board was fleeing into the night. And the only ones that showed even a modicum of faithfulness were a few ladies from the women's auxiliary. That was how it was founded. So, from the very beginning, it was made up of flawed and broken people like you and like me. So, when your friend says to you, I don't believe in organized religion, but then softens and says, Can you convince me? Maybe what you say is, I'm sorry. We've often fallen way short of the goal. But I can tell you this. I love God as imperfect as it is. And I love you. And that's where it all begins. But you may want to keep one other thing in mind. And that's your attitude as you respond. So in honor of that, Could I invite you to stand, to stand with me as we read one last time our North Star passage, our guiding passage for this series from 1 Peter chapter 3. Would you read it with me aloud and let us bring our passion to it? Worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it but do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Gracious God, thank you that you have put your hand on us and called us to be your people. It's stunning to consider. Lord, continue to transform us, to empower us, to live out that core reality of love for God and love for others. And as you do that, give us the spirit to represent you well. In the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.